Please be seated. Good morning, everyone, and uh, so good to see all of you in chapel uh, this morning. Uh, we're still in the Epiphany season. We have the uh, Epiphany altar panel uh, still on display. And uh, the text I've chosen for today is from uh, Epiphany Day, Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. After the wise men had heard Herod the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Uh, During my freshman year in college at Valparaiso University, all freshmen lived on, all the freshmen who lived on campus were not allowed to go home until homecoming weekend in late October. The rule, I believe, had something to do with helping freshmen overcome homesickness by encouraging them to stay on campus and to make new friends at the university. When I returned to my home in Milwaukee for the first time and saw my old high school and neighborhood friends, I was surprised by how much they had changed. Their immediate interests were not my interests. Their recent experiences were unknown to me. I just didn't seem to fit in as I had this summer before I left for college. Perhaps you have experienced something similar to this at some point in your life. You left home to go away to school, to join the military, to go on around the world semester. And when you returned, things had changed. Or, of course, maybe more accurately, things had stayed pretty much the same, but you had changed. This kind of experience, I believe, is nearly universal. Relationships based on shared experiences deteriorate when new experiences are no longer shared. We like to remain close to our friends, but we can't always do so in spite of social media if we've journeyed down different pathways and have had very different experiences. Uh, The poem that was given to you this morning when you entered chapel is a dramatic monologue written by T.S. Eliot. The poem describes a journey, a journey which changed a man's life, a journey which made a man feel uneasy with his old friend's once he returned home. The speaker in the poem, the man who was changed, is one of the wise men, one of the magi. This magi now speaks as an old man who was recalling his journey to see the Christ child in Bethlehem many years before. He talks of the long, cold trip he and the other wise men made. He talks, too, about the life-changing experience of seeing the baby Jesus and then about returning to his home. So let's take a look at this poem by T.S. Eliot. Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. 
Then the camelmen cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women. And the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears saying, this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. I'm not going to talk here about biblical allusions, but you probably are catching some already. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at the open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember. But set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but I thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. After this wise man returned home, things were different for him. He felt uneasy in his own homeland. His friends remained unchanged, but he couldn't really get along with them because he had changed. God and man had been revealed to him. He had followed the star, had seen the Christ, and had been transformed. He couldn't live in the past. He was a new, wiser, wise man. But he was not altogether happy. In fact, he suggests in the last line of the poem that he is ready to die rather than to remain in conflict with the old ideas and customs of his former friends in his former life. This is a predicament that T.S. Lewis describes in this poem is, I believe, familiar to many Christian people. During this epiphany season, God calls on us to see and to be something new. He calls on us to respond to the word made flesh with joy and with songs of praise and with a new perspective in life. And yet, there is often an uneasiness that comes upon us when we try to live as renewed people of God. There is some sinister something that snakes its way into our minds and tends to draw us back to our old familiar ways and back to our old comfortable relationships. There's a tension between the excitement of experiencing the birth of a new life in Christ and the pain of experiencing the death of our old life. T.S. Eliot was not merely using his literary imagination to write a poem about the wise men. Eliot was also talking about his own journey, his own journey from the heights of literary success and critical acclaim 
to the difficult decision to publicly embrace the tenets of Christianity and the Christian life. Born and raised in St. Louis to a family of nominally religious Unitarians, educated at Harvard, and encouraged by some of the brightest literary lights in Europe in the 1920s, Eliot was baptized into the Church of England in 1927, the same year he wrote Journey of the Magi. Many of Europe's most gifted artists were dumbfounded by Eliot's conversion to Christianity. Much of Eliot's pre-conversion work, exemplified by his poem The Wasteland, portrayed a world without hope, without a future. But his post-conversion poems and plays dealt openly with religious themes and biblical stories. Talk about no longer being at ease in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods, Eliot struggled the rest of his life, but struggled successfully to cling to his Christian faith in the face of subtle and overt alienation by the literary establishment. This is, no, this is nothing new, folks, but the Christian life can be a struggle. Sometimes it appears that we're living in a world antagonistic to the gospel, surrounded by people in our communities who are bent on belittling what we believe, teach, and confess. In the end, Eliot's poem provides an incomplete picture of the Christian life. It emphasizes the challenges of a Christian conversion of a believer living among unbelievers, not the forward-looking hope that we as Christians have within us. But for what it's worth, Eliot is describing a side of the Christian life which is very real and can be very painful. Uh, the takeaway this morning, well, take heart if you're struggling in your Christian walk. If you're struggling to be a Christian in the 21st century, Struggle and suffering because of Christian beliefs are not unusual. That struggle goes with the territory. But suffering on account of Christ points to the promise that we will one day be glorified with Christ. Romans 8 verse 17 tells us that we will be glorified with Christ provided we suffer with Christ. In his Romans con commentary on verse 17, Dr. Middendorf writes this. By the way, he goes on for two pages to explicate one half of a verse. Uh, Mike writes this. Implied here in this half verse is that a present, expected, and often unpleasant reality of being in Christ means at least some degree of suffering with and for him. Being a child of God and a sister or brother of Christ does entail suffering in this world. Yet this suffering is focused forward. After enduring our present state of suffering with Christ, we will be glorified by God with Christ, just as our fellow heir Jesus suffered before entering his glory. We do not seek out more suffering with Christ in order that we might be glorified all the more. Rather, as we bear the sufferings of God, as we bear the sufferings that God allows to befall us, we do so with the confident hope that he will work everything out in the end. We don't know what became of the wise men after they returned to their own country, 
But we can imagine, along with T.S. Eliot, that they had a rough time of it returning home after their encounter with the Christ child. We can also imagine that God worked everything for their good, transforming their suffering and pain into joy, just as he is working to transform our suffering into eternal joy. That is our literary and biblical lesson for today. Amen.